This is the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess, and we're taking off the blindfold on the way into episode number 47. Welcome to the Birth, Baby, and Life podcast, the tips, tools, and straight talk you want for pregnancy, childbirth, and bringing up baby. And now your host, Kristen Burgess. Hi. This is Kristen from naturalbirthandbabycare.com, and today we are going to be continuing our series of Q&A episodes. We're going to focus on pregnancy and birth complications today. It's a hot topic. I know it's a hot topic. I actually recorded the intro to be kind of provocative. I feel like so many moms go into their pregnancy thinking to themselves, I hope I'm lucky enough to have a good birth. I hope I'm lucky enough to carry my baby to turn. I hope I'm lucky enough to avoid X, Y, or Z. Whatever the complication is, whatever the problem is. And when we go to our doctors, even to some midwives, when we go to government organizations, when we go to various medical peer societies, when we go to charities and and nonprofit organizations, many of them will give us warning signs. They'll tell us about the tragedy of this or that complication. But most of them will say something along the lines of, We don't really know what causes XYZ. Or there's nothing you can do about XYZ. That's not true in a huge majority of the cases. There are sometimes things that happen that are freak accidents. Sometimes things are caused by freak accidents, like a mama is in a car wreck or something. I mean, that's going to be something that affects a a mom on a system-wide level. And yeah, it may lead to a premature birth or another sort of problem. And there may be some things going on in a mother's life that no matter what you do, if you don't address the root cause, you're going to see the complications. This is very true, for instance, in the third world, where a lot of women die in pregnancy or in birth or relatively soon postpartum and there's nothing to address the underlying issues that those women have going on. There's malnutrition, there's incredible stress, uh, there's poverty and I think that the issue with poverty is not necessarily the poverty itself because a basic pauper's diet and lifestyle could be intrinsically nourishing and could be, you know, pretty low stress. But unfortunately, poverty often brings with it low food supply, high stress, especially in a very urban environment or in an environment that's being affected by environmental stressors. But we're not here to talk about what's going on with mamas in the third world country. I think most of us on some level understand the core of their problems. What we don't understand 
is why do these problems happen in first world countries? For instance, why is the mortality rate, the maternal mortality rate in the United States rising? Why has it been rising since the 1990s? That's scary, folks, to think about with our modern medicine and everything and with a downward trend that was moving steadily downward, and yet all of a sudden we're rising again, and everybody kind of pretends like it's not happening. That's scary. We need to look, and as mothers, we need to be educated. So what we're going to talk about today, and the questions that I've gotten today, are from moms who want to be educated. They, they don't want to accept that there's nothing that I can do. I don't have all the answers. And all the theories that I talk about, all the things that you can consider doing may not be a complete answer to whatever XYZ problem there is. There may be some of you who seek out a maternal fetal medicine specialist or a perinatologist because you know that that's what you really need. And I don't have a problem with that. I do think that we need to examine the evidence. I do think we need to examine the work of doctors, midwives, mothers, who have changed things and not dismiss them, not oversimplify them, not bash them. We need to look at what they achieved and say, why were they able to achieve this when all of these charities and government organizations and hospitals and medical bodies throughout the world aren't achieving these results? The big difference is, is that these pioneers, so to speak, who said, okay, we see first world women middle-class women, even upper-class women, and they're having these problems, how can I change that? And then they looked and they worked and they did something. These other societies often say, it's just luck. You can't really help it. We don't know what causes it. And that's a cop-out for mamas and babies. So now that I've given that little spiel at the beginning, we're going to move into the questions. I'm going to start with the pregnancy complication questions, and I'm going to try and move at a brisk pace so that I can get a few in. And we're going to start with the biggest one that I get, which I've got several different variations of this question. The simplest one that I've got in front of me here is how do I prevent preeclampsia? And then just variations. So with my last baby, I started to show some preeclampsia symptoms at the beginning of my third trimester. I had to take it easy. I had all of these issues. My blood pressure would go up. Swelling would get bad. I was taking large amounts of dandelion root and milk thistle. What can I do now to stay healthy for my next baby? Uh, Another mom, I was induced five weeks early due to severe preeclampsia. I would really like to avoid that this time around. I tend to have issues with high protein in my urine. How can I prevent that? And this particular mom can't have dairy, eggs, gluten. Um, My sister and my mom both develop preeclampsia. Is there something that makes me at a higher risk because of my family or can I avoid it? And just question after question along those lines. And you'll find out in a minute why I included the high protein in the urine question. Preeclampsia is one of the biggest ones that they say you can't prevent, you can't do anything about. And I will be the first one to tell you that there is not consensus, not even among midwives or more naturally minded care providers, as to what the cause of preeclampsia is. You may hear that we really can't do anything about it, that it's just one of those luck things. I mean, genes are really a big deal right now. If you have the wrong gene, then you're screwed and you can't do anything about it. That's the trend in the news, uh, which is why we have people who are doing 
super radical things like getting, you know, breasts sliced off and stuff as a preventative measure because they have a particular gene. When there are a lot of other preventative measures that may not be quite so dramatic. Well, preeclampsia is one of those. And they think maybe it has something to do with the genes. And maybe there's something going on with the placenta that's causing it. And maybe it has something to do with the particular daddy of your child. So some women, they say, won't have it with one child. And then they have another child with a different father. And they'll have it. And so maybe there's some sort of interaction. There are a lot of theories. And one of the theories that's out there is a nutrition theory. This theory tends to be totally dismissed by everyone except midwives, some midwives. And really, even even the midwives who disagree or who feel that there may be other reasons, Gail Hart is one of them. You can get, she has a book on research reports for midwives, and she talks about several different theories and why she thinks that they're true. But she even feels that you should follow some of the advice that I'm going to talk about, even though she may not agree that nutrition is the root cause of preeclampsia. So even though there are differing opinions, there are, there are things that you can proactively do and that you should proactively do. The problem that comes up is if you look at any sort of preeclampsia, toxemia, help syndrome support online or anything, There will be full of women who are saying, I heard it, I tried it, it didn't work for me. And it's, it's like, it's a source of ridicule. People will literally ridicule you for saying something like, well, you should eat a diet to prevent preeclampsia. They'll say it doesn't work. What you need to do in order to prevent complications like preeclampsia and many others, low amniotic fluid, intrauterine growth retardation for your baby, preterm birth, Being well-nourished is a key to preventing almost all of that. A couple of weeks ago, I released the Q&A on diet. I think it's actually been three weeks ago now that I released the Q&A on diet. And I talked about what diet you should follow, which is the Brewer diet, on that Q&A session. And I also explained it. I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but first of all, realize that eating high protein is, is an oversimplification. So they'll be told, well, I ate all the protein that, say, Dr. Brewer's diet recommended, and it didn't work for me. But the thing is, is that that's a gross oversimplification. You need to also get the calories, and you need to get the salt. And the reason that this works is not some woo-woo science. The reason that this works is literal metabolic changes in your body and literal systemic changes, especially in your circulatory system, and we're, I mean, we're talking about chemistry here. So osmotic pressure, um, you know, we're talking about chemistry and we're talking about biology and we're talking about physiology. So the osmotic pressure of your bloodstream needs to be maintained. And like I said, I talk a little bit more about this on that call that uh, the podcast I did three weeks ago, the Q&A on diet. But Basically, your body needs to be able to maintain a 60% increase in your blood supply, an extra 2.1 quarts of blood on average. Quarts are pretty big. That's a lot of extra blood. And if that's not there, multiple systems fail. Kidneys fail, all kinds of things. Now, 
I, like I said, I don't want to go into a lot of detail and I'm tempted to keep going on it, but I want to comment on a couple things that you heard in these specific questions that I read off. So the one mom said that she used dandelion root and milk thistle for liver support because liver and kidney failure is one of those things that seems to be going on with preeclampsia. I'm not completely opposed to the thought of using some sort of herbal liver support. It's been used by lots of women, lots of midwives, honored for many centuries. But the first thing that you need to realize is going on often with preeclampsia or toxemia or HELP syndrome is that the blood volume is too constricted to support the health of the mother and the baby in the placenta. And the blood supply needs to be expanded. The reason why there's so much swelling, that can be a characteristic of preeclampsia or one of the related umbrella syndromes, is because the body is desperately trying to produce more fluid, but there's no osmotic pressure in the bloodstream to hold it into the blood. Therefore, it leaks out into the ankles and when it gets extreme, into the hands, into the neck, into the face. A little bit of minor swelling of the fingers and of the ankles of the feet at the end of the day is normal in pregnancy, but once it gets extreme, it's not normal. So what you need to do is pull that back into the bloodstream, which you do by getting the osmotic pressure of the blood where it needs to be. That's supported by protein, yes. It produces a substance called albumin, also by salting to taste. And if you're not taking in enough calories, then that protein and stuff gets gutted and broken down into glycogen, which is sugar, to be used by your body for energy rather than to be used by your bloodstream to maintain your blood supply. That's a really quick rundown. But that's what happens. Now, where does that relate to herbs? So that relates to herbs that are liver supportive because those herbs also almost always universally have diuretic properties. Diuretic means it makes you pee. It eases water retention. If you have a grandma or a great aunt or somebody who has problems with water retention, her doctor probably has her on diuretic pills. Doctors used to prescribe diuretic pills for women who were pregnant and had swelling until lawsuits in the late 70s stopped that practice, though I've heard rumors it's starting again, but those lawsuits stopped that practice because it was proven that mothers and babies who had a severely constricted blood supply who were already in critical condition were being given diuretics, which made it even worse, leading to maternal death, leading to babies dying, and thankfully... There were doctors who stepped forward and testified at these lawsuits and these hearings and things and stopped the prescription of diuretics. So when we look at herbal diuretics, do we really, just because it's not a prescription, do we want to be going willy-nilly with it? Do we want to be taking large amounts of it? No. Like I said, you may decide that you're comfortable with like a cup or two a day of a pregnancy tea that may contain these herbs like dandelion, nettle, oat straw, and also red raspberry leaf, which does not have diuretic properties. The other three do. But you may decide that you're comfortable with that. However, I would certainly address any blood supply problems before you do that. And don't take those herbs in gross quantities. Just don't do it. Even if it supports your liver, it could be possibly constricting your blood supply even more, which would be causing problems. Now, the reason why I included the mom's question who said that she has high protein in her urine while pregnant is because having protein in your urine is a sign that 
your body is spilling protein, which happens when protein is being broken down. The body is desperately trying to break down bodily protein. It's breaking down dietary protein. Uh, albumin, which is the substance that helps create osmotic pressure in the blood, can only be manufactured from dietary protein. So when your body's breaking its own stuff down, that's a pretty desperate sign that's not really going to help. And you tend to spill protein at that point. So if you're spilling protein in your urine, you need to eat more protein, yes, to provide your body with the protein that it needs. But you also need to make sure that you're getting plenty of calories. The general recommendation is 2,300 to 2,600 calories for a singleton. If you're expecting multiples, please go buy Dr. Luke's book, Dr. Barbara Luke's book, when you're expecting twins, triplets, or quads. That has an excellent rundown of the amount of protein and calories that you need with a multiple pregnancy. She doesn't cover the salt so much, so I'll give it to you really easy. You should eat her diet and salt your food to taste. Her diet is proven, just like Dr. Brewer's diet, which is really the diet that I recommend for any mom with a singleton. His diet was proven. It was proven to work over something like 12 years in a low-income clinic, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the immigrant moms, the, those who were at the bottom in Contra Costa County, California. These doctors, Dr. Luke, um, Dr. Brewer, the Montreal Diet Dispensary, um, Higgins, I think, is the doctor that was up there. But all of these are doctors who were pioneers, and they are really working, were really working with women. Uh, and Dr. Barbara Luke's work is much more recent. These these care providers made a difference and saw very low complication rates, high birth weights, long gestations for twins, triplets, and quads in the case of Dr. Luke. I mean, these, these women were coming out of these clinics healthy, with healthy babies. And you can sit in the halls of academia and argue theory all day long. But when you have care providers who are getting in there, doing it, seeing change, and seeing healthy moms and babies, that makes a big difference. So you should heed their work. And again, go back to the diet episode because I can't go into everything about what you're supposed to eat in this one because I need to move along. Uh, but but th- that is the basis, taking care of yourself with a good diet. And to the questioner who said, my sister and mom both developed it, maybe there is something genetic. But it will not hurt for you to get proactive right away and say, I know that I need to expand my blood volume. I know that I need to have high nutrient levels. This is a proven diet and I'm going to follow it because it's going to expand my blood volume. It's going to ensure that all those nutrients get to my baby, get to my placenta. There's ample blood flow for the placenta. My baby will have enough amniotic fluid. There's plenty of blood to support my kidneys and my liver as they do all their filtration. There is no harm in doing that. Now, if you're just going to chuck protein powder all day, until you get to 100, 120, 150, whatever you think it is. Dr. Brewer said 80 to 100 grams. If you're just going to do protein powder all day, yeah, there's evidence that that may be harmful. But we're, we're thinking about natural pregnancy and birth here. So you want food-based sources. Okay. How can you avoid being GBS positive? We're going to move on. And how do you avoid treating chronic recurring UTIs without antibiotics? These two questions were from the same mom. And that leads me to believe strongly that there is a 
a biota, a microbiota imbalance going on for you. So you know, you've heard, everybody's heard about good bacteria and bad bacteria today. Your microbiota describes that collection of bacteria, both good and bad. So an imbalance means there's too many bad guys and not enough good guys. There is a lot of work. I mentioned Gail Hart a few minutes ago. She's a really respected midwife. She just loves digging into all this research. So she's done a lot of research on uh, women who are GBS positive. Sarah Buckley is another one who has done tons of looking at the pros and cons of standard GBS protocols. Um, And then Gail Hart's also looked at, so if you have problems with uh, vaginal infections like BV or yeast or something recurrent like that, Everything that I'm talking about helps address that, as well as, I believe, urinary tract infections. So what you want to do, first of all, is really boost the good bacteria that's going on down there in that entire region and also in your entire digestive tract. Eating or taking probiotic pills can be helpful for that. What you... What you really, really want to do is get that probiotic bacteria in there so that it locks in and stays. Probiotic foods are very effective at that. And I've had, I have a a mom who's really overwhelmed. She's new to my mama baby birthing classes and she emailed me and she's, she's like, I don't really even know what a fermented food is, Kristen. What does that mean? So probiotic foods, fermented foods, they're the same thing. I told her that she probably does already know what one is because she probably has had yogurt and she's probably noticed live active cultures on the side of the yogurt container. So yogurt is a probiotic food. It contains beneficial bacteria. Kefir is another milk product, a fermented milk product that contains probiotic foods. And then any traditionally made sauerkraut, traditionally made kimchi, beek vas, uh, pickles that, that are traditionally made. These are all probiotic foods. It means that they're made by lacto-fermentation, not vinegar preservation for the cultured veggies. But they have a lot of good bacteria in them. And those strains of good bacteria, they've grown in a natural way and they're being delivered in a natural way through a food. So the probiotic effects are very potent. Yogurt and kefir, especially kefir, kefir, and especially if they're homemade, are nice little superstars because you can actually apply them directly, you know, directly to the vagina, birth canal, perineum, the labia, that entire area down there. And I talked about this in another podcast episode, so I'll link to it on the episode on giving your baby good gut flora. Dr. Campbell McBride talks about this. Um, And so that's a way of introducing this good flora directly to the area that is in need of it. And you can mix a little bit of a probiotic capsule in and you only need a little bit like a little teaspoon of yogurt and you make an application after your shower or something. Uh, Again, I talk about it more on that podcast, so I'll refer you to that one. But then you also are eating the probiotic foods, and I would also recommend that you eat resistant starches, which are very hard to digest by your body. In fact, impossible. But unlike fiber, good bacteria love resistant starch. So you eat it, your body doesn't use it, but your good bacteria really love it, and they gobble it up. And if you take that with the probiotic food, Or with your probiotics, it increases the effect and gives those good bacteria a better chance of sticking around. Uh, And I can't get into a huge discussion on resistant starch right here, so I'll try and, and link to some resources for it. 
But that is what you want to do if you're seeing GBS positive stuff, if you're seeing chronic recurring urinary tract infections. I wrote a huge article, like 2,000 something words, on preventing group B strep. And so I will link to that as well because it's a really good article and I go into a lot of detail on all of this and I also give some protocols that I've had midwives recommend to me um, if, you know, if there's stuff going on. Okay, I got some questions, several questions about what do I do if my baby is if my baby is in a bad position. And I do feel like that might be considered a pregnancy complication, especially one of these moms. She had a baby that stayed really high and the cord prolapsed, which leads to an emergency cesarean that nobody wants to have. Good baby positioning is often habit and a lot of times our modern life is the antithesis of good baby positioning because you want good alignment, good pelvic positioning. I talked about this some in the exercise um, Q&A episode that I did, but you want to try and walk every day. Ideally, you walk barefoot. When I'm recording this, we've gotten probably three or four inches of snow today on top of the probably three or four inches that fell last night on top of what was already on the ground. So we're starting to see a lot of snow and walking barefoot is not feasible for me. But I still try and walk. I picked as flat-soled boots as I could find. And so I'm still out there walking and feeling good about it. And that helps encourage alignment. So you should walk ideally every day, even when you're not pregnant. But when you're, when you are pregnant, it's especially good for you to do. And if possible, walk barefoot outside in nature, on the grass, on a hiking trail, something like that. Or walk in barefoot shoes like moccasins or one of the brands of barefoot shoes that are on the market now. So walk because that aligns your pelvis well. It aligns your pelvis naturally if you're walking naturally. If you're walking in high heels or shoes with those little springs or whatever's going on in them or the air pockets or all the cushioning stuff, that affects your balance. It affects your gait. It affects the alignment of your spine. It affects the position of your pelvis. And it's possible that that affects how your baby decides to position inside your womb and in relation to your pelvis. Another suggestion is to sit on a birth ball when you're inside and when you're sitting rather than on a chair. When you sit on a birth ball, your body is essentially forced to sit with proper alignment because otherwise you roll off the ball. And I've talked about this a few times before too, but that's a good way to encourage good alignment, especially when you're pregnant because it also encourages your baby to take a good position. If baby is staying high in the birth canal, or, or rather in the womb in relation to the pelvis, you may want to look at some other things. A chiropractor may be able to help you. You may want to do something like walking up and down stairs, uh, walking kind of crooked on the sidewalk. I don't know how else to explain it, but you, you walk with one foot on the sidewalk and one foot down in the street. So you're walking crooked and walk the block that way, then turn around and come the other way. That and walking up and down the stairs, it kind of encourages the baby to come down into the pelvis. Uh, as I was hiking with my dog through the snow this morning, and I'm always thinking about pregnancy and birth things because that's what I do. I mean, I teach you ladies so and gents. So I was thinking, you know, that, oh, Jesus, walking through the snow, the snow's starting to get heavy. It's kind of like walking up and down the stairs. But again, if none of those things seem to be working, I would definitely go see a chiropractor. 
Some women have had success with an acupuncturist or an acupressure uh, consultant who can do things, but all of those practitioners are able to get in there and look at the nerves and at the the alignment of the spine and is there something that's off that needs to be adjusted and if that is the case it could be holding baby up so that baby can come down and fit into the pelvis where he or she is supposed to be so make good posture make movement exercise that sort of thing a habit Honoring the natural way that our body is supposed to be during pregnancy. The exercise Q&A podcast talked about this some more. And then if something still seems to be off, definitely look for a professional who's good at looking at alignment, who's good at working with perhaps freeing nerve blockages and things like that, that may be holding baby up high. Okay, what can I do about painful gas and bloating? This one is kind of a, a discomfort, but uh, peppermint is safe to take during pregnancy. It, it will possibly decrease milk supply for some women, so you may not want to do it too much postpartum, especially while you're building your milk supply. But during pregnancy, taking peppermint is safe and effective. And what we talked about a few minutes ago for the mamas with GBS or recurrent urinary tract infections, um addressing the gut flora and the good gut biota can be very helpful. Another mom asks, is it safe to try and lose weight while pregnant if you're obese? No. Any sort of weight gain restriction, caloric restriction, anything like that during pregnancy has been proven to be detrimental. The well the well-rounded mama did a nice summary of studies that showed that even for obese moms, Trying to limit calories and limit weight gain resulted in poorer outcomes for mothers and babies. It could be that a mama who is overweight to begin with may naturally end up gaining less weight than a mama who was, say, at her ideal weight or certainly than a mama who was underweight uh, before pregnancy. But don't try and lose weight. Your baby cannot take everything from your body, like you may have heard old wives' tales say. Your baby can't cannibalize, say, the fat stores in your body and turn that into all the nutrients that it needs. Your body can't cannibalize your fat stores and turn it into the protein and then convert that into the albumin that it needs. It just doesn't work physiologically. The calories that you need aren't just there because they're extra fluffy calories. The calories that you need during pregnancy are there because they're required for the maintenance of your body. Now, if you find that you're following, you know, the minimum for the brewer diet is 2,300 calories a day. If you're having that 2,300 calories a day, and if you take, say, a walk every day, not intense exercise because that would require increasing the calorie level. Because you have to compensate for the calories that you're burning in the exercise because you still have to hit that 2,300 minimum. But if you're getting 2,300 calories a day, if you're getting the recommended, um, if you're getting the recommended protein, if you're salting to taste, you may decide to have a little bit less carbohydrate and eat more fat during your pregnancy because then you're still getting the calories that you need, but you're not possibly triggering any insulin imbalance that you may have going on. 
or any insulin defects. Instead, you're kind of bypassing that. I would never recommend no carb to a pregnant woman, but you can safely do low carb if you're very careful about it. And you may notice that, that again, coupled with exercise, that you don't gain very much during your pregnancy, but you should never intentionally restrict calories. You should never intentionally try and do any sort of quote unquote weight loss or calorie burning exercise. Don't do that. Incidentally, I've had a few moms ask about gestational diabetes and the same thing that I just recommended to a mama who may have been obese to begin with, never follow a calorie restrictive diet, which is also recommended to gestational diabetic mothers. You should follow a diet that gives you full calories, full protein, salting to taste, and lower the carbohydrate level. Not all the way to zero. You don't want to be on a ketogenic diet or anything, though there have been a couple of case studies with moms who followed a ketogenic diet successfully because they had severe diabetes during pregnancy. But it, I don't want to recommend that you play around with something like that. Go with what's safe and what's known to be safe, which is a lower carbohydrate diet, say a paleo diet where you're having some sweet potatoes and things throughout the week, but you're still hitting those calories, the protein, and getting the salt, and that will most likely control your blood sugars. It won't be low calorie, which could endanger your baby and you. It will protect your blood supply and probably everybody will be pretty happy. If you have a midwife or doctor who's skeptical, offer to to journal what you're eating and track your blood glucose readings after every meal and upon waking. And I know I kind of segued from the overweight mom into the gestational diabetic mom or the one who's worried about it, but they are related with the dietary recommendations. So it's a good basis. Journaling what you're eating, tracking what you're eating, it can get stressful, but overall I think the benefits often outweigh the stress. Okay, I think that I've actually, I'm not going to have time to get to the birth complications. So I think that I'll leave this one off with pregnancy complications. Uh, The one other thing that I did want to talk about, and I hinted at this at the beginning, is you can do everything right. And if there is a lot, like everything right nutritionally and, and walking and moving and feeling good and doing your birth preparation and being aware and a good consumer... But if there is a lot of stress going on, it can undo all of that. There's a midwife named Sister Morningstar. She's one of those, you know, decades of experienced midwives. And she said something along the lines of, you know, you can never feed a mom enough for stress. And what that means is even if you're following a great diet, if there is a lot of stress going on, then that could cause adverse effects. It could undo the things that good nutrition is doing. So build regular stress relief into your life. And I understand that this can be really tough. It's tough for me. I'm coming off of a couple of weeks of just being super stressed and realizing, hey, I need to calm down. And it's especially important for you as a pregnant mom to build anti-stress routines into your life. And just... Anything that would boost oxytocin, that boosts that sort of feeling of feeling good and peace. So a warm bath, a good novel, petting your cat, rolling on the floor with your little ones or just watching them being adorable. (laughs) Um, You know, being with your husband, making love, holding hands, watching a funny movie together, cooking a good meal if you enjoy cooking, eating a good meal if you enjoy eating. Whatever it is for you that helps 
helps you relax listening to good calming music or whatever build some of those routines into your day and something that's especially potent for pregnant moms is when you've been in a stressful acutely stressful situation as soon as that is done or winding down you're doing something you're talking to your baby you're reassuring your baby and you're thinking about your baby maybe folding some baby clothes or daydreaming or looking online at cute baby gear or the baby carrier that you really want that sort of thing that gets you feeling connected with and bonding with your baby because that's just really powerful to help you uh, get to a place where oxytocin is flowing and that 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 activates the calm and connection system, which is the opposite of the fight or flight system, the stress, the system of stress. So you want to build into your life, activating that calm and connection system. And I actually think that I talked about this some in the podcast on your baby's experience of pregnancy. So I'll link to that one too. But the these things just really all come together to help calm you down. And again, establish habits of them. Put them on your to-do list if you need to. Like, you know, 10 minutes where I chill out with my office door closed and my music playing. Or, you know, I go to the bathroom and hide for five, eight minutes from everybody. Or, you know, you just find these moments for yourself. Make them for yourself in any way that you can and that counteracting that stress really helps you keep things lower risk in addition to everything you do with nutrition and taking care of yourself and your baby physically lowering your stress levels even pampering yourself a little bit goes just as far and makes just as big of an difference it's just as important remember taking care of you is taking care of your baby and that those are the best ways to prevent pregnancy complications and I know that I'm I didn't get to a whole umbrella of them but I touched on some of the really big ones and what I talked about is really the core for so many issues so give that some thought do some more research check out the links in the podcast show notes um, and I, I think I'll get to birth complications next week since I didn't get to those this week. Uh, I did want to let you know that by the time you get this recording, I will be opening another session of my live six-week class, which is my great pregnancy class. This class isn't about birth preparation. It is about taking care of yourself through pregnancy. It's about feeling great from the first moments where you say, ha-ha, morning sickness, you didn't bother me, all the way until you're in your third trimester and you're at those very last few weeks when you're waiting on baby and making sure you've done everything to make sure that you have a safe and smooth birth. So it's about physically taking care of you, about the best things you can do for your baby. I go into a lot of detail about exercise, about diet. I go into tons of detail on preventing many different complications, on overcoming lots of different discomforts. And that that class is going to be open for this week. So if you're listening in the future, I try and run a few sessions a year, but this week that class is open. It's a live class, so unlike my birthing classes, it's not self-paced, really. It's live. We go through it one evening a week. You get lots of handouts as well as a recording of the video or the webinar. And I would really love to have you in that class. So if you are interested, you can go to birthbabylife.com slash 
greatpregnancy, birthbabylife.com slash greatpregnancy and get more information or head to naturalbirthandbabycare.com and you'll see a little banner announcing that the great pregnancy class is open on the homepage and probably on every page of the site it'll pop up. So again, birthbabylife slash greatpregnancy or just head over to the main website. And with that, I will look forward to talking to you next week. I would love to have you in the new Great Pregnancy series starting next week if you would like to join in that. And as always, if you could leave me a quick rating at iTunes or in Stitcher, it really helps other families find the podcast. I appreciate it and they appreciate it. Please have a blessed week. Thanks for listening to the Birth, Baby and Life podcast with Kristen Burgess. For great resources and tons more info, visit www.birthbabylife.com. Visit www.birthbabylife.com.